Greetings, and welcome to What Happened to That Guy, a podcast about former Baltimore Ravens and life after football. I'm your host, John Eisenberg. This isn't a podcast about politics, and I don't want it to be. But there's an American presidential election coming up, and politics are hard to avoid right now. When I interviewed former Ravens linebacker Adelius Thomas for this episode, we talked about his memorable years in Baltimore, and we talked about his lingering bitterness over how his NFL career ended, and we talked about what he's doing now, all of which I'll get into momentarily. Very interesting stuff. He's one of the most unique players in Ravens history, and he's a unique former player too. But the subject that really got Adelius going when we spoke was politics, specifically voting. At age 42, he lives in Atlanta, Georgia. It's the epicenter of a controversy over voting rights and what many minorities perceive as attempts to suppress their vote. The bipartisan U.S. Commission on Civil Rights reports that no state has done more than Georgia in recent years to make voting difficult, especially for minorities. Adelius Thomas is a frontline soldier in that battle, using his platform as a well-known former NFL star to push back against what he sees as his state government's attempt to stifle the minority vote year after year. It hasn't gotten any better. They talk about it for a second, and then it goes away. Nobody ever does anything about it. Nobody gets fired. The governor has never said one word about it. I don't understand how the same thing happens over and over again, and nobody's ever accountable for it. I mean, you go there and you wait six hours to vote. There's nowhere in the world. The goal is to oppress the vote. Why would I have to wait six hours to vote? That, is, that, is, that to me is a crime, and nobody's going to jail for it. It's a story the local media in Georgia has reported on for years. And the story's gotten hotter lately. When Adelius references people waiting six hours to vote, he's talking about a situation that arose in minority neighborhoods in Atlanta in recent years. Multiple voting precincts were shut down without explanation, resulting in a consolidation of precincts. And in the end, more and more people had access to fewer and fewer voting machines. People waiting to vote stood in lines that stretched seemingly forever. I was at the polls. Matter of fact, Jesse Jackson ended up coming. We fed the people pizza in line so they didn't have, in case they got hungry. We passed out water. I mean, just so that people can be comfortable and give them a sense of, you know, listen, we understand what's going on. People go vote now with lawn chairs. Now, why would you go with a lawn chair? Because you know you're going to be suppressed. You know they're going to mess with the system. The fact that people leave their house with a lawn chair so that they can sit down and they know how long it's going to take to vote, that this is not right. Last year, stood at a precinct where they had four machines. They closed down two places, made those people come from other two places that they closed down to one location and then gave them less machines. Now, we all know what this is about. People coming there on their lunch break. They can't stay in line, so they go home. And then they get through. They can't come back and vote in time because the place is closed. And you wonder why they protest. That is systemic racism at its finest. It's the oppression of the vote. So what do you see your role uh, is as far as just continue to call attention to it and don't give up the fight and, you know, do... Correct. You know, meet with whoever I can meet with, talk to whoever, you know, keep making noise until they hear you. It's that important. People die to vote. 
That's for sure. No, I did. I noticed one of your uh, tweets fairly recently where you said, if you're protesting and not voting, you're part of the problem. If you can vote and you're not voting, what are you protesting for? Your local government is much more important than the federal government, hands down, because those are the people that you see and make the laws for the school and do all those things. All those things are things you have to go and vote. Go vote. In the 25 years since they came to Baltimore, the Ravens have selected dozens of prospects in the late rounds of the draft. And they've uncovered plenty of bargains, but they've never found a better late-round bargain than Adelius Thomas. He was a sixth-round pick in 2000, a linebacker from southern Mississippi who was a two-time winner of his conference's Defensive Player of the Year award. But some scouts thought his motor was inconsistent, so his draft stock plummeted. The Ravens were thrilled to grab him as late as they did with the 186th overall selection. They thought he was one of the best athletes in the draft, actually one of the better athletes their scouts had seen. Brian Billick, who was the Ravens' head coach that year, told me Thomas was, in fact, so gifted that his college coaches didn't know what to do with him. I don't think they really knew how to, knew how to use him or utilize him properly. You know, he's not, you don't put him in one position in a fixed role and, and he's going to do just this. His strength is, 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 is his versatility. Broad-chested, fast, and agile. Thomas started out playing special teams. There was no room for him in the starting lineup of the Ravens' dominant defense. He was such a playmaker on special teams that he made the Pro Bowl in that role. Eventually, Rex Ryan and the defensive coaches wanted him on the field for them, too. He's just an incredible athlete. Incredible physical skills. I mean, like, we, and we used him. Rex Ryan always took great pride in saying that we literally used Adelius in every single defensive position. Utilized him in a lot of different ways, which he, he loved, and he took on that responsibility. In one famous incident, the six foot two, 270 pound Thomas lined up at cornerback opposite Chad Johnson of the Cincinnati Bengals, a legendary on-field talker. What's your big rear end doing out here, Johnson asked, only he didn't say rear end. Thomas cracked the starting lineup and then soared as an outside linebacker on a particularly great Baltimore defense in 2006. He registered 11 sacks, 106 tackles. That earned him first-team All-Pro honors. Shotgun formation. Four down linemen for the Ravens, and they show blitz. And here it comes. Roethlisberger pumps. He's hit. Loose ball. He fumbles the ball at the 40. It's picked up. Adalus Thomas has it at the Ravens' 30. 20. He's going to go. 10-5. Touchdown. Adalus Thomas. And the Ravens deliver the defensive points. Knockout blow. Corey Ivey again coming off that edge. That nickel blitz. You can smell it. You can feel it. You can hear it. The crowd, the players. The defensive points were there for the taking. Corey Ivey starts it. Adalus Thomas finishes it. And the Ravens may have just thrown the knockout punch to the Steelers. His all-pro season unfolded at exactly the right time for him. When it ended, Thomas became a free agent, and he cashed in big. The New England Patriots, winners of multiple Super Bowls already, signed him to the largest free agent contract in their history at the time. The deal had a maximum value of $35 million, not Bad for a guy drafted number 186 overall. Thomas moved on to the Patriots, and he played well for them in 2007. 
That's the year they went into the Super Bowl unbeaten and lost to the New York Giants. But then things began to sour. He got hurt in 2008, and he got crossways with Patriots coach Bill Belichick in 2009. He complained publicly when he was deactivated for a game, and then he was sent home one day for being a few minutes late to practice in a snowstorm. He complained about that too. Uh, I think what happened in New England is, is particularly, and I'm you know, not typical of New England, they did give him a big contract. And so that expectation comes in. And then even though New England is known for a team that utilizes players, you know, finds their strengths and, and finds specific roles for them, I don't think they really did that with, with Adelius. Uh, that there was more there. And so I think the pressure of wanting to live up to that contract, their expectations, the fact that they really didn't, uh, they, they just weren't structured in a way to, to allow him to do some of the things that we did um, was probably frustrating for both sides, and that's probably where they got sideways a little bit. But he is a player that you you got to talk to a lot, you know, and, and I could see where, you know, Bill's style maybe didn't quite, you know, set with the Dahlias in terms of the way he deals with the players. The Patriots cut him after that season, and the NFL rumor mill churned with speculation about where he might land. Maybe the Jets, where Rex Ryan was now the head coach? But Thomas never played another down in the NFL. It turned out that when he was done with the Patriots, he was done, period. And he was not happy about it. In the course of putting together these podcast episodes, I've learned that how a player exits the NFL can be a big deal going forward. Did they leave on their own terms? Was it their choice? Was it someone else's choice? Were they ready or were they not ready? In many cases, the player's acceptance of what happened to him at the end goes a long way towards determining how things go for him after football, especially initially. And Adelius Thomas is Exhibit A of the end not going down well at all. Uh, I definitely wasn't ready for it. I thought I could have played, you know, at least another five years when I was uh, released by New England. And it was one of those things where definitely wasn't ready for it. Uh, trained, stayed in shape for two and a half, three years, just in case somebody called or whatever. And then when somebody did call, it was always a, a bug or in the ear of, whatever it is, you know, a rumor or whatever it may be. But for, for whatever reason, I didn't I didn't get a chance to get picked up again. But I knew I could still play the game at a high level, and that's why it's probably so hard to accept. Looking back now, Thomas believes he was branded an attitude case because of what happened in New England. Somebody kind of take your livelihood away from you a little bit due to rumors or whatever it is uh, from, I guess, being in New England. For the record, Brian Billick said he had no problems with Thomas in the seven years they were together in Baltimore as coach and player. Could be temperamental, but not in a negative way. I don't ever remember any issue with it. He was always quick for a joke, and he was fun to coach. He was an enjoyable player to have on the team, I thought, and really just such a unique, maybe one of the most unique talents I've ever been around. How long did it take you to get over that or, or argue over that? Um... I don't think I ever get over it. it. Took probably three and a half, four years to really get out of a funk. Did you hear what he said? He was in a funk, waiting for a chance that never came, for four years. 
Eventually, he snapped out of it. The cloud lifted. He doesn't really know why, except that time was passing. And probably, at some point, reality just set in. He was 36. He wasn't going back to the NFL. That chapter of his life was over. Unless he was going to just drift along forever, and he didn't want to do that. It was time to find something new to do. A new purpose. He admits he hadn't thought much about it while he was still playing. Well, I don't, I don't know if I thought about it. I call it young and dumb. Um, <laughs> you, know, Dad, you, you just don't have a identity of what you really want to do. Or, for lack of better words, I guess you haven't found your passion. Finally, he took the first step of his second act. He found something to do. Something that wasn't football, but gave him similar satisfaction. When he was with the Ravens, he'd made a good friend in the restaurant business, a guy who ran a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. That friend had moved to North Carolina and was, as Thomas said, still doing his thing. He and Thomas formed a partnership. That's when I hooked up with uh, my partner in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and um, opened up a restaurant. It gave me something to do. It gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me a sense of direction. You know, it gave me some type of identity. A year later, Thomas opened another restaurant with a different partner, this time near Baltimore in Ellicott City. Grill 620, it's called. It's a Mediterranean-influenced dining spot near Turf Valley Golf Course. It's still going strong. And meanwhile, Thomas has continued to expand his restaurant empire in North Carolina. And yes, it is an empire. It's more than one restaurant, is it not? Is it a chain? Yeah, now now we're up to um, one, two, three... Four, five, uh, <laughs> by the end of this year, it'll be six. Six restaurants. It'll be, it'll be six in North Carolina. So a coffee place, it's called um, People's Coffee. There's three Town Hall Burger Beers. There's a fourth one that I opened up later on this year. And we just opened up Oya Cantina. Is that Peruvian food? It actually has a Peruvian infused. Okay, let's count it up. There's the coffee place. There's Grill 620 in Ellicott City. There's the three burger beer spots, a fourth planned. There's the Peruvian-infused place. No doubt, Thomas is deep into the restaurant game, and he's loving it. I couldn't have been blessed with two better partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about you know having a Pro Bowl player on your team when you're new to the space of the restaurant. Um, having the ability to lean on guys like that, you can't thank them enough for their foresight and the ability to do such great products. Do you have your hand in any anything else? I have commercial real estate in North Carolina. I have rental property in Baltimore and Massachusetts and Alabama. I have a minority value distribution here in Atlanta and have a logistics company here. A logistic company, you say? Yeah, so we deal with logistics of uh, shipping product for companies or whatever it is. And a management uh, company that kind of manages all of the companies. Ah, so a management company, logistic company, uh, commercial real estate. Did I leave anything out? I mean, you got your hands in a lot of pot. Yeah, I mean, and the most important of all of them probably is Uber. Daddy Uber. (laughs) (laughs) Daddy Uber, he said. In other words, driving his five kids everywhere. Needless to say, the coronavirus pandemic has upended Thomas's world, especially the restaurants. These are not easy times in that business, with indoor dining limited and outright prohibited in some places. But Thomas is surviving. Again, it goes back to your leadership of um, the guys that are there running it and doing the day-to-day operations of Ali and David. Again, 
I, they've done such a great job of um, minimizing and having foresight to adjust and pivot in key factors. And so everybody has a challenging time uh, doing this time, not just restaurants. I think a lot of places had a lot of challenging times and have to adjust and deliver food and pick up services that you normally didn't do. <laughs> and so it's, it's been a challenge, but I think that uh, considering the pandemic and uh, but I, I feel that if anyone can weather the storm, it'd be I wouldn't rather be in it in it with no one else besides those two guys. His other businesses are also impacted. You know, the district you have to slow down from all of the safety regulations of, of shipping, new rules, regulations on you know how you ship, wiping things down as you receive things, who has touched it, who has not touched it. But you know, rental properties for the most part, you know, you just hold tight, be understanding. You know, just be humane. You know, understand that the pandemic is kind of everyone. Those people that kept this country going, the essential workers, you know, half off those people that work tirelessly in the medical field. My sister's a nurse who does travel nurse. She's in New York City now um, dealing with COVID patients. She's in California dealing with COVID patients. So knowing and understanding that firsthand, uh, my niece is a radiologist. Um, so she was in Massachusetts dealing with it. Um, and so it's, it's, um, it's a scary moment. It's a scary, it was a scary time, you know, when the people that you love and care about uh, can't be protected the way they should be. So, um, again, it puts a lot of things in perspective. Adelius Thomas's Twitter feed says a lot about where his mind is these days. He tweets a little about football, but more about social justice causes. He calls attention to the work he does with the Players Coalition, the group that former Ravens receiver Anquan Bolden co-founded, which advocates for widespread change. But no doubt, the issue at the forefront of his mind is voting, protecting the rights of minorities to go to the polls and have their opinion count, pushing back against what Thomas sees as blatant suppression efforts. Georgia has closed 214 prisons or places in the last 10 years or so. Georgia has 214? 214. They've closed. So the population has grew, but you closed 214. Now, where in the world would that make any sense? And why would you do that? Last year after the election, they found a warehouse full of voting machines that never got used. How does no one go to jail for that? How does no one answer to that? And, you know, the crazy thing is, what does it say about our government here in Georgia, our leadership, that you will continue to allow this to happen? You are known for this. What does that say about our leadership from the governor, secretary of state? And people have complained about it over and over again, and nobody has not went to jail one time. And how are you the governor, and you continue to do that? The mayor has spoke about it several and many times, and she even tweeted about it. Doing the thing and saying, hey, look, all the machines are down in the south side in the black community. Is this just here or is it everywhere? The question for the Georgia Secretary of State is, who's held accountable for this? And what happened to the system? Why is it offline? Is it the Internet? Is it the machine? What is it that's making the thing go offline? We never get a report on it. It's always there where they're just not working. That's not an answer. It's just not working is not an answer. Where the Internet is down. Uh, what, what, is, what, are, what are you talking about? After fighting this fight for years, Thomas has plenty of thoughts about what should happen in this country with voting in general. 
make the change to the voting system. The United States needs to change the voting system. There's no reason why we should be using paper ballots. I mean, most of your bills don't even come in paper. Most right. of your bills come via email now. To think how far in advance we came in technology, the fact that I have to leave my house to go stand in a line to vote at a certain polling place versus just saying, hey, look, when you get ready to vote, you register online, you have a social security number, they know what county you're in based on your driver's license, choose your county, it populates that thing online. Hell, the healthcare stuff is online. You see, you can go get insurance online for all of these people, but I can't vote. There's no reason for the atrocity of voting system that we have in America. We vote in the same way since then. Why is voting not a national holiday? I don't know. Why not? The pandemic told us that we can do it. Everybody can stay home and you can vote over a three-day period. And I would say give it three days. A national holiday to vote. You live there. You're in the heart of it, sort of the epicenter of this whole situation in Georgia. You're a former NFL player, not a current NFL player. I mean, how do you make your voice heard? Or what can you do other than just shout? You know, you can just continue to make it known that we're going to try to make the change, try to pressure the people that's in power to make the change. Make the change to the voting system. Try to get the squeaky wheel against the oil. And, you know, you keep trying to squeak it. You keep trying to squeak it. That's it for today's episode of What Happened to That Guy? You can find out more about Adelius Thomas's career at BaltimoreRavens.com slash what happened to that guy? I'd like to thank him for giving me some time and for speaking so frankly about his disappointment over how his football career ended. I'd also like to encourage everyone listening to heed the advice Adelius gave early in this episode. Go vote in the upcoming election, please. Another episode of What Happened to That Guy will drop in two weeks, and they'll keep coming every other week for the rest of the 2020 season. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Tell your Ravens friends about it. This podcast is part of the Baltimore Ravens Podcast Network, which also includes The Lounge, hosted by Ryan Mink and Garrett Downing. And new this year, Black in the NFL, hosted by my colleague Clifton Brown. Wherever you get your podcast, just search for The Baltimore Ravens Podcast Network and everything will come up. It's all good stuff. This is John Eisenberg. I'll talk to you in two weeks.